our passage. As I said, we, this fall we're going to be, Lord willing, studying the book of James. This is a book of the New Testament, and uh, we've only looked at the first verse of it so far. So if you don't have your Bible, the text is there in the bulletin, James chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 2. And in our introduction, we said that there's, there's several Jameses in the New Testament, and it seems that this James, the one who wrote this book, was Jesus' half-brother. Um, this is the James that Jesus grew up with. So we're going to be starting in verse 2. friend of mine who is uh, a pastor in Mississippi, used to pastor in, a, even by Mississippi standards, a small town in Mississippi, relayed to me a story that he heard from one of his church members. And, and this is something that sounds like it is out of a southern novel or short story, but the story I'm about to tell you is true. Here's, here's how it goes. Um, one or two towns over from where he used to pastor is, I mean, I wouldn't even call it a town. This is just almost a stop in the road in Mississippi called Sugarlock. And I think I might give you a $100 bill if you could spell that correctly, because I'm very confident that no one can. Uh, anyway, Sugarlock, Mississippi, there was a lady there. She'd grown up there, and she had had a childhood friend. And this childhood friend later in life became a Catholic nun and lived elsewhere. And they had not seen each other for some time, but they kept up with each other. And this woman still lived in Sugarlock. Well, this woman... Uh, became very ill and somehow got word to her friend that she, that she wasn't doing well. And so her friend, the Catholic nun, I don't know where she was living, but she came to visit her friend and just see her and visit her and, I guess, uh, take care of her. Well, she comes to the front door. This is several decades ago that this happened. She comes to the front door, she knocks on the door, and she's met by this woman's maid. And when the maid sees her, her eyes become just, you know, saucers. And she said, yes. And the Catholic nun said, uh, hi, I'm, I'm a friend of so-and-so's, this, this lady's employer. And I've, I've come to see her. I've heard that she's sick. And this woman stared at her and said, uh, no, she, she feels good. And kept staring at her. And so the Catholic nun says, well, I, I got a message from her that she was I mean, very, very ill. I've, I've actually traveled here to, to check on her. I wanted to see if I could see her. And she said, oh, no, no, she, she's, she's getting better all the time. And then she stepped out of the door. I'm not making this up. And she, she was wearing an apron. And she got the apron and began to go, shoo, shoo, to shoo her off the porch. Okay, now, has anyone guessed what was happening? They come to find out that the maid had never seen a Catholic nun before. And she thought she was the angel of death. <laughs> coming to get her employer. And, and I mean, really, you have to love it that she stands between death and this woman she cares about to say, off the porch. You know. <laughs> Sign her up to be my friend. This passage that we're about to read... Something similar happens. James, and really, this is the beginning of the book. The first verse is just him saying hello. But right out of the gates, he says there's something that God sends into his people's lives. And when you see it at your door, it will feel like 
that is here to hurt me. It may even feel like that is here to polish me off. And the reality is, it's more like a friend to help you in your time of need. When you see it, it is frightening. But it's like a friend coming to help you in your time of need. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I sat down with, uh, with a man who's a financial planner, financial consultant, to talk about our ma- massive finances, and, uh, and he probably cleared the whole day just to, to meet with us. I'm, I'm kidding, guys. I'm kidding. But we were talking with him, and just he was doing the, the good stuff that, uh, where it's good to get this kind of objectivity about thinking down the road, decisions you need to make, especially with children coming up. And, and so he made notes. I still have his notes, and he's writing on a yellow pad, and, uh, and it kind of started laying out, all right, here's the game plan that I'd like to see us go through, kind of a, here's our list that I want to work down, and it was just, it's the kind of stuff that a lot of you would know a lot more about, or maybe you've had a meeting like this, and he's talking about, like, uh, just savings, your, your rainy day fund, you know, for when life happens, and then further down the road, retirement stuff, and investment planning, and things like that, and then thinking about, hey, since you have children, we need to think about college. You know, it's only getting more expensive, and if you want them to go, that's, that's coming down the road, and you probably need to think about something like term life insurance because you're in this vulnerable phase of your life, and you need to have your will set up. So all those notes. So he kind of made this pyramid of let, let's have this game plan. And when he got to the end of it, he said this sentence. This is the one sentence I remember verbatim. He said, and, and when you do this, then you're bulletproof. Now, I want to say this. I, I do not want to fault him for saying that, uh, and I, I'm not trying to, to be uncharitable to him. But that word landed with me. And I know that when you, when you have a job like he has, you talk about these things all day. You need succinct ways to say them when you're talking about this stuff over and over. And I think that's what he was doing. And it got his point across, but I thought, man, when he said bulletproof, that really goes to something that we really want. And because all of us 
I think, would agree that either all our lives or big chunks of our lives, even when it may be, especially when things are going well, you're waiting on a bullet. Now, I don't mean a lethal bullet, but I mean a bullet that hits my comfort or it hits some felt sense of having some control over my life. Now, by the way, most of the felt sense of control that we have is an illusion, but we still like it, and I don't want something to hit it, or it hits my health, or it hits a sense of personal peace and well-being. I do not want that bullet. And when you can kind of lay out a game plan and say, hey, do this and you're bulletproof, Man, that strikes a chord. But, of course, what's the reality? The reality is no one's bulletproof. None of us are bulletproof. And they're scary, and we don't want them. And for those of us who have had a bullet that hit our comfort or our health or our money or a loved one, we feel a commitment to do whatever it takes for no more bullets to hit. Now, the Bible calls when one of those bullets comes just unannounced, unexpected, hits your comfort, hits your health, hits your feelings. That's a trial. And here's the paradox, is that the thing that we dread brings the life that we crave. That's a paradox, that the very thing that we dread brings the life that we crave. So I want to unpack that from this text. I want to look at the thing that we dread, the life that we crave, and the God who gives. The thing we dread, the life we crave, and the God who gives. Now, I I mean, we've already said, it's obvious. Why do we not like trials? They hurt. They're painful. I, I like smooth sailing, and trials are the opposite of smooth sailing. But there's a couple of details in the text that that get at why these are unpleasant experiences. And the first one, it doesn't really come through in English, but it comes through in the Greek. Look at the first verse of our passage, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Now, that Greek word for meet is a nuanced term. It doesn't simply mean, you know, if you met someone for the first time, were introduced, and you just met. It's, it only appears two other places in the New Testament. The first place is in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it says that there was this traveler, and he's on the road between uh, Jerusalem and Jericho, and he fell among robbers. It's that verb. And what does that mean? It means he's going along... And whatever, you know, fellow travelers, journeymen that he'd like to see, other pilgrims, these are not the ones he wants to see, but he kind of looks up and boom, there they are. And like it or not, you're among them. You you encounter them, unexpected. The second place it appears is toward the end of the book of Acts, and it's describing when Paul is with this group of people on a ship, and the ship wrecks. And it wrecks when it hits a reef. The word that's used there for the shipwreck, the ship hitting the reef, is the same verb. Is this the harbor that you want? Is this the place you want to dock, you know, anchor your ship? No, but like it or not, you have encountered a reef. Unexpected. Boom, there it is. That's the verb that James uses to say, I want you to count it all joy when what happens, when you're going along in life and then wham, 
you encounter trials. It's going to be extremely rare that, you know, a, a Christian can meet with his or her little prayer group and say, now listen, I think three months from now, God's going to put me through the ringer for four weeks. And I, I want you all to be praying for me. You probably need to bring me lunch during those four weeks. And it's not going to work that way. It's, you, you will be going along in life and, uh, and you get this call. You thought it was just a normal checkup. And then the doctor says, uh, we need to talk about your blood work. Or you're just kind of sailing along in life and then you get this letter and it's this real official looking letter and you open it up and you find out that you're being sued. And no one saw it coming. No one's ready. And James says, when you have that kind of meeting, this is what I'm talking about. And we don't like that. I like to know what's coming. I do not like change. And I especially, the only change I like is from less comfortable to more comfortable. But this is not that kind of change. All right, so there's that. And the other thing is in verse 3. What does it say? You meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith. What is the trial? It's testing your faith. Now, I want to say a couple of things here. First off, James can get a bad rap in the New Testament because he is so heavy on imperatives. He is not afraid to tell us what to do and how to do it. And that's, that's really what gave Martin Luther heartburn about the book of James, is he, he wanted to hold up grace and that you're saved by grace through faith. And he's reading James, and it's just command, 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 command. But notice how, right at the beginning, what is James saying? Look, when you meet and you fall upon these trials, it's a test. What is God testing? He is not so much testing your works... He's testing your faith, saving faith. Here's the second thing. Faith is one of the only terms that gets this lovely definition in the Bible. Most other terms you have to gather, you know, look at the different appearances of it and try to cobble it together and get a feel for it. Faith is defined. And there's this famous chapter, it's Hebrews chapter 11. It's a book all about faith. And the first verse in Hebrews 11 says, the faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And, and this may be the harder part. It's the conviction of things not seen. When you fall into this thing that you didn't want to happen, but it's happened, and now you're in it, and you don't know how long you're going to be in it, your faith is being tested. You're going through a test of your conviction of things not seen. Now, there's a lot of different ways we could go with that. I want you to think about this. Think about um, in the Gospels, there's this, there's this incident that's recorded where Jesus and His disciples, they're outside the temple and they're watching people go into the temple and leave their offering in the offering box. And, you know, you can hear the clang of the, of the coins. And along comes this little widow... And she drops in two small coins. Monetarily, everyone else who's gone before her, everyone after, is giving more. If you're looking at the bottom line. And Jesus, when he sees her, he turns to his disciples and said, Do you see that woman? She gave more than anyone else. Because here's the difference. They gave out of their abundance. They know they have margins. They're giving out of their margins. 
and here's where you see he's God too, that he knows everybody, he knows everybody's story, he knows all the details. She gave everything she had to live on. That was the last money she had, and she let go of it. Now, man, many a preacher has taken that and just wailed on congregations like, who do we think we are? Not to give more. The question that we sometimes don't ask is, why did she do that? How could she, this was, that was not a parable. That actually happened. How did this real lady, in crummy circumstances, it would be crummy to be a widow in that first century setting. There's not all kinds of governmental help and agencies. She, she has to be realistic, and she lets go of it. Why did she let go? And it has to be this, that the things that she could not see were grabbing her heart more than the things she could see. Now, is that because she was a better person? No, that was God's mercy to her. But God's mercy to her was that the things that she could not see had her heart and her feelings and her will more than the things that she could see. That is faith. And this is very convicting, friends, because I think you could say about your life what I would say about my life, and that is that I give tons of energy and attention to doing whatever I can not to be placed in a position where I have to live by faith. And it's not that it is wrong to do stuff like meet with a financial planner and try to be a good steward and look down the road, and the Bible talks about all that stuff. But we're talking about faith. And a lot of what I do, I'd say especially, especially with money slash stuff and scheduling, that I don't like a lot of question marks. And the reason I don't like a lot of question marks is I do not want to be placed in a position where I don't understand what's happening and the only thing I can do is live by faith. I will do almost whatever it takes to control the circumstances so I don't have to live by faith. And God in His love will send trials to walk up and you'll just think that maybe it was the mailman or whatever and you open the door and there's the trial and it will feel like it is there to kill you or to hurt you or maybe to punish you. But for God's children, it's there to help you. God sends it, believe it or not, as your friend to give you, ironically, the life we crave. All right, what is the life we crave? Look at the end of verse 3. It says that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, you could translate that word endurance. Both would be good translations. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, and let endurance have its full effect that you may, per- that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When you think about, whatever age you are, when you think about what would I like to be if God gave me this many years, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, nobody is going to say, you know what I would love to be several decades from now? It's just a big fat baby. I want to, I mean, I want to be the kind of person that the least little setback makes me come unhinged. 
I want to be so spoiled and so insecure and fragile that the least amount of... No, okay, of course not. Of course not. If we even think about our future, we want to be the kind of person that if God brings a setback into our life, and maybe there are people around us asking, how are you doing with that? Or are you okay? Whether that's you know, a sibling or a friend or a coworker or a child that we're able to look at that person and say, listen, I'll tell you what, it, it is not easy what I'm going through, but not only am I going to survive, I'm going to flourish. That's the kind of person we want to be. If you have a child and you think down the road about, wow, what if God brought us through something hard? What, what kind of grown-up do I want to be talking to this child? You want to be the kind of grown-up saying, Honey, listen, we're not just going to be okay. We're going to do well. And, I, and I'm not totally sure what that's going to mean, but we are going to do well. That's the kind of person we want to be. I want to be strong. I want to have uh, mental toughness and emotional toughness. I don't mean a tough heart, but I mean a thick skin and a tender heart. I, I want to, and I want it to be multifaceted. I don't want to just have these two strengths and this big gap of weakness. I want to be well-rounded. I want to be whole. I want to have integrity. I want to be able to take good days and bad days. I want to be the kind of person that when they get the curveball, they're not freaking out. That is the life we crave. And here's the thing. One of the reasons why all of us would love to have at least a six-figure number in our savings account and preferably a seven-figure number, or keep going up, in our savings account is so that if the big, scary, monster situation trial comes into our life, then we can back up and go, well, not what I wanted to happen, but I've got the resources to handle it. Now go back to thinking about your mental picture. So then what would you be saying to your coworkers, friends? You know, yeah, such and such is happening. It's really painful, but I've got 2.5 mil in the bank ready to throw at it. Yeah, that'd be an awful thing to say, even if you had it. No, you, st- you don't want to tell the person, no, I've got incredible allocation of resources to handle this. You would say, you still want to be the kind of person saying, irregardless of assets, it's going to be good. It's not just going to be okay. It's going to be good. This is going to be for good. It's hard. It's going to be for good. That's the life we crave. So God sends these trials. Because that's what produces the life we crave. Well, but we're going to need things when all of a sudden you open the door and there it is on the porch. What do we need? And this is the beauty of the fact that God is not just a God saying... I, in my sovereignty, have decided that the next three years are going to be like a shakedown for you. But God, in His love, says, I'm going to tailor-make situations. It's going to be just what you need to produce that kind of steadfastness, endurance that I want in my people. But this is amazing. The very thing that I'm going to require of you in those hard times, I'm going to give you. And that... I know this is horrible grammar, but that is so God to give everything that He requires, to give what He requires. Where where do you see that in here? First thing you're going to feel the need of 
is wisdom, big time. And this is, that's a big theme this fall. We're looking at this in Proverbs and James. A lot of people say it's like the wisdom book of the New Testament. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, note this. You don't get the wisdom just from the suffering. Let me say that again. You don't get the wisdom just from the hurting. You get wisdom when you ask for it. And I'm going to say this now. This will come up a bunch in this series. That the book of James is just loaded with references to the Sermon on the Mount. It's just any commentary, any scholar that, that does work on James talks about this. It's loaded with references to the Sermon on the Mount. Here's one of them. What did Jesus say? Hey, I've come into a situation and I have a need. He says, ask and it will be given to you. And James echoing says, you come into this thing and you go, good grief, I didn't know you would be on my porch and I'm frightened and I don't know how long you're going to be on my porch. I'm going to need a lot of wisdom. And what is wisdom? It's knowing what to do in the realities of life. It's knowing what to do in the complexities of life. And you're feeling, I don't have that. You ask for it and God will give it to you. And it it is remarkable how James describes God as the giver. He says, He gives to all generously. And he doesn't say to all believers. Maybe that's what he means. But Scripture is very clear. He gives to all. Many a fall Saturday is a beautiful, you know, high-pressure system, bluebird sky, crisp air sort of day that's just perfect for gathering in a stadium. And God will send that on a stadium. I don't have any particular stadium in mind when I say this, by the way, or any affiliations. But He will send that on a stadium knowing that quite a few people in that stadium are going to use that fall, crisp, clean air. They're going to draw it in to use His name as a cuss word. To use His holy name as their own rhetorical exclamation point. And He knows that and He still sends it. Because He's very generous. And if you come to something and feel, I am out of my depth, I need wisdom, you can go to Him without the fear of being popped in the mouth for, well, you should have learned this in your 20s. The reproach. He'll give you without reproach. All right, but here's the deal. And it's funny, this is a lot like last week. Because we looked at suffering and tragedy last week. And you got Jesus saying, Hey, see these tragedies? Here's the main point. You need to repent. Repentance is turning to God. Why would I want to turn to a God who lets tragedies happen? Similar situation here. Here's this trial in my life. Here's this diagnosis. Here's this loss. Here's this grief. Here's this setback. Here's a bankruptcy. Um, So I'm going to ask this God... Who sent that? I don't know about that. How do I know he's that generous and he's that good? What is the proof? Think about this. 
know, I referred to that great chapter on faith, Hebrews chapter 11. The whole chapter is about faith. And then right on the heels of that, chapter 12, it begins by saying this. Therefore, in light of everything we just said, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our what? Of our faith, who, he's going to describe him, for the joy set before him. What, is, what does James want us to have? What, what does he want, how does he want us to process trials? With joy. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Now think about that, guys. The verb that's used there, who endured the cross, that's the verbal form of the word that's translated here, steadfastness. When Jesus was on the cross, did He want to be there? No. And it is wrong to misrepresent Him as wanting to be crucified. He prayed three times the night before, if there's any other way we can do this. If there's any other way we can do this than having the cup of God's wrath be handed to me to drink, let's do that. There's no other way. But what did he want? He wanted to live with his bride forever. And he wanted her to be there clean with him in the new earth, to be spotless, and to be in a new earth where there is no more suffering. There are no more tests. There are no more tests in the new earth. No more testing. Really, then you live by sight. And it's okay. He wanted her to be with him. He wanted that joy. And the only way that was going to happen would be to go to that cross and drink the cup of wrath so that together with this bride, the cup of blessing in our hands forever. So he goes. And he is fully man, but he's fully God. Who is our God? Can you trust this God in trial? This God went. And for the joy to be with us in a world where there are no trials, he goes to the place of horror so that we won't have to. And think about this. Also in the book of Hebrews, he's not only described as the author and and, uh, perfecter of our faith, but he's our elder brother. And it's the picture, think about it, of an elder brother who's not only seated at the right hand of the father, but he's ahead of you in life. And he's looking back at the younger siblings. I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but it's as if he's saying, are you starting to feel like our father does not love you because of what you're going through? Remember, I was born into poverty, and the Father loved me. I lost my dad. And Joseph's not there later in the Gospels. I lost my dad, and the Father loved me. When I gave my life to healing and teaching all through Judea, at the end of it, I was misrepresented and lied about. People misrepresented me when they had no basis to, and it felt at that moment... It felt like God doesn't love him, but he loved me all through that. And he loves you. Now keep following me. 
He's going ahead of us showing that the way to glory is the way of the cross. The way to glory is the way of suffering. That's how you trust Him and say, all right then, I'm coming to you with empty hands and saying I'm overwhelmed and I need wisdom. One last thing He gives is verse 12. What does it say? If you stand the test, if you make it through, if you take Him in His word, it ends. That's what we call an eternal perspective. That the life where my comfort, my peace, my health is never threatened again. My relationships, my possessions are never threatened again. He's offering me that. And again, the money in the bank is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how I know It's there for the taking. What does that mean for us? Well, we said James loves imperatives. What's the first imperative? I see y'all starting to bundle up now from the air conditioning. Uh, The first imperative is this. Count it joy. Count it joy. And and the, the note I want to end on is to say, listen... The followers of Jesus Christ are not to be a people who, as life is happening to them, are constantly reacting. And and I'm saying this on a level playing field. That's how we do most of life. That the hard thing comes and we react. And we might say anything. Okay, maybe God's trying to teach me something here, but okay... I've been through it for two weeks. Stop. I don't think I'm going to get more lesson if it's for six months. James is saying, listen, if he is this kind of God and he offers this and he's moving us toward, in this life, the life that we crave, but this eternal life with him, the bridegroom and the bride forever in the new earth, if that's what he's doing, quit looking at your trials as if, Life is happening to me. You happen to it. And rejoice. Rejoice and believe that He loves you enough to send the hard thing that's going to bring changes that no sermon MP3s or books or Christian get-togethers are going to do. It's going to take this. And it's going to burn this dross away and you're going to be left with something that makes you different. And when it says, when you encounter trials, when you meet trials, that's plural. We have to help each other. I want to um, end with this. I've, I've mentioned this before, but I, I think it's been a while. A friend of mine and Dana's, when he was an undergraduate, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's and uh, began to be treated for it. And this is a guy that was a very active um, very athletic, funny, extroverted in the, in the middle of everything. And so he, Hodgkin's apparently is very treatable, but it's not a foregone conclusion that everything gets better. And you really have to, at least when he was going through, go through chemo or painful steps. So he was going through that, and it, it, the things that happened in chemo happened to him. That This strapping, kind of hyperactive, funny guy, uh, he just loses all this weight. And he loses his hair. And he gets behind in schooling. 
and he loses his girlfriend. And a lot of people that seem like friends kind of disappear from his life. And it's crummy. And he, he told me that one night when he was in the hospital undergoing chemo, he got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and he's making his way there. And just from fatigue and nausea, he just collapsed. So he's halfway in the bathroom and halfway out. And he's lying there on the cold floor in his uh, hospital gown. And he said, And it finally hit me what grace is. Because until that moment... I thought, like, I'm this great Christian guy, and I do this great Christian stuff on campus, and isn't it great that we get to be Christians together? And it hit him on the floor. You are not leading any Bible studies right now. You're not leading anyone to Christ. You don't feel like praying. You're not giving any money. You are doing nothing for him. That's grace. That you have his favor and his love and his commitment and forgiveness. You're in Christ because he does for you. Not because you do for him. He said he had never understood it until that moment. And he has told me, not once, but twice when we've seen each other, hey big, calls me hey big, hey big, I love Hodgkin's. Who would say that, you know? Who would say, I love this horrible disease? He said, I love it. That's what God sent to my door. And I would not have learned these things any other way. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds because a loving God sent them to us. Let's pray together. Father, some are sitting here and they know exactly what the trial is. They are in the furnace of it right now. And they feel it, uh, they feel it from bills that are due. Or they feel it from tension in their family. Or they feel it in their very body. Or they feel it from a panicky feeling in their gut. And they need your help. And we pray that it would be given to us. Would you give them, would you give us the wisdom we need? Would you give us an eternal perspective? Would you give us joy in the Holy Spirit that you are not done with us? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.